a prayer before study. Ineffable Creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Amen. Welcome back to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. This week, we are looking at chapters 15 through 26 of Julian's long text of her showings. That is Julian of Norwich, the amazing 14th century contemplative writer who we have been reading the past few episodes. This is actually episode three of an eight episode arc. So let's enter into her world. All right. I have to confess my dominant thought when I read this section. Ugh, why does Julian talk about suffering so much? In chapter 15, she talks about her own suffering. She goes back and forth between two intense emotional states. At first, she is filled with spiritual delight. Then, suddenly, she is oppressed and utterly weary of her life. This pattern continues back and forth, exhausting and confusing. She has shown that regardless of her feelings, she is held in the same steadfast love. In chapter 16, Julian watches Christ vividly dry up and become almost corpse-like on the cross. I will never forget leading a discussion on this section in a reading group. In that reading group, there was a hospice care nurse. She told the group, that Jesus' drying up in this section made her feel nauseous because it reminded her so much of what happens when people die in hospice as their bodies fail. I don't think any of us in that reading group will ever forget that comment. And Julian feels like this is the greatest pain of Christ's passion, this drying up. In chapter 17, more pain more pain of drying, more pain of death. Jesus thirsts. Julian cries out and wishes she had never asked to share his suffering. Um, And that's actually from the very beginning of her writing that she had prayed to share Jesus' pain. She intensely feels his suffering and feels like her own pain is worse than death. Then she realizes that her pain in watching comes from her love of Christ. And this pain is different from the hell of despair. In chapter 18, more suffering. Surprise! 
Julian witnesses Mary's suffering with Christ as he suffers. Then she writes on how all creation suffered when Christ was on the cross. Okay, we get it. Julian is really absorbed by the problem of pain. Julian's focus on suffering makes me pretty uncomfortable. It feels like a medieval relic in a bad way, like self-flagellation and guilt complexes. Yet, such discomfort can illuminate our biases and perceptions as modern-day readers. Culturally, we're pretty good at avoiding suffering. We sharply question anyone who focuses on it too much. What is Julian trying to tell us with this focus on suffering, both ours as God's creation and Christ's own? Chapter 19 helps us to enter into Julian's meditations on suffering. In chapter 19, Julian hears a voice that seems friendly, telling her to look away from the crucified Christ and instead look up towards heaven. This call to look away is actually an invitation to bypass suffering, to look up to heaven to move ahead to the end promise instead of attending to Christ's life and death is a temptation for all of us as we try to navigate our world without suffering at all. We're constantly trying to eliminate it. We reject our mortality and our vulnerability in favor of narratives about our strength, about our triumph. The tricky thing is, is love itself opens us up to suffering unavoidably. To love someone invites suffering of all different kinds. Let me be clear here. I'm speaking of healthy, loving, functional relationships, not abusive ones or ones that lack healthy boundaries. Of course, the easiest kind of love suffering to identify is the pain of loss and death. The week after the death of his father, my husband felt pain in his chest. His chest felt like it was being ripped open, as he described it, like Prometheus of Greek myth. Every day when he woke up, he found it literally hard to breathe. His chest felt physically heavy. Living felt pretty intolerable. But would he have chosen to love his father less in order to avoid that pain after he died? It's not only death that invites the suffering of love. Marriage is often painful. The pain of mutually submitting your precious minutes, your sovereign will, and your private thoughts to another person's needs and desires. That's even on good days. It's ten times harder when times are bad. To love and cherish in sickness and in health is costly. Parenting is even more obviously that way. I have never felt less like my own person than during pregnancy and my children's infancy. Nothing belonged to me while I was breastfeeding. My body sustained someone else and I couldn't just do my own thing. My body, mind, night and day were bent to the will and needs of a tiny person. This tiny person 
had no sense of privacy, space, or time. I'm really thankful for my children, and I love them deeply. I'm also an introvert with high needs for quiet solitude. With those needs, I suffered, sometimes cheerfully, sometimes with a decent amount of angst. I willingly suffered because I cherish them and want them to be loved and safe and healthy and attended to. My suffering is a drop in the bucket compared to the parents who love their children wholeheartedly and their kids have special needs or deadly diagnoses, or for people who care for their aging parents. In our culture, we generally agree suffering should be avoided at all costs. Seek it out and you are considered masochistic. But the pain of love and life together is not inherently masochistic. It is just how human love works sometimes. Julian's refusal to look away from Christ on the cross in chapter 19 indicates her embrace of the vulnerability of love, the pain of love, and her assent to sharing in this pain of Jesus. And thus I chose Jesus for my heaven. To love is sometimes to be metaphorically crucified. Julian writes of all creation, participating in the crucifixion with Jesus, suffering in love. And equally, they share in his exaltation and bliss. Now things are beginning to perhaps make more sense. Julian's intertwining of suffering and joy And that sequence of the strange, almost whiplash visions she has that go back and forth between these poles of feeling help us to understand the properties of human and divine love here on earth. Love is not, despite what our culture tells us, something that always makes us feel good. Instead, love reveals us to ourselves in both our vulnerability and createdness as well as our strength and eternal being. This is also why it is important that Christ tells Julian, quote, If I could suffer more, I would suffer more. Chapter 22. Once, when I was teaching this section to a reading group, one of the participants said, It doesn't help me to know that Jesus suffered more than anyone. Why should that be a comfort to me? This is a very fair question. To Julian, it matters. Because every drop of suffering we have, we share with Jesus. Pain is the great isolator. Anyone who has suffered, which is all of us, knows how lonely pain is. No one can truly understand your feelings on something. It is interior. But pain is known by Jesus intimately. And thus he can find us even in our worst pain, self-inflicted or caused by others, mental or bodily. When I suffered from prenatal depression, pregnancy caused hormonal misery that my husband could not share with me. 
nor, despite his best efforts, understand it fully. I read this passage and recognized that Jesus shared it with me. This might sound a little weird, (laughs) but that he has suffered every drop makes even our most isolating and lonely pain shared with him. As the psalm tells us, even in the valley of death, he's with us. In the midst of our suffering for love, we can recognize that however much our love and losing those we love pains us, the crucifixion remains the height of love. If God hadn't suffered more than anyone else for our love, it would mean that we love each other or love ourselves more than he loves us. That is comforting. When I look at my little baby, Constance, and the love wells up in me so fiercely that it almost hurts, I recognize that the Lord looks at me that same way. Afterwards, when the Lord asks Julian if she would like to see Mary, she eagerly assents. If you can remember back to week one of this series, Julianne is modeling her response to God after Mary's response to God. Julian understands Mary as a mirror held up to ourselves, the emblem and model of how much we are loved by God and how much we can love Him in return as His people. And Julian notes, with emphasis, Mary is the only specific created person that Julian ever sees. It is as if God says to Julian, do you wish to see in her how much you are loved? Chapter 25. She writes that she doesn't see Mary bodily in this moment, but instead comprehends, quote, the virtues of her blessed soul, her truth, her wisdom, her love, through which I am taught to know myself and reverently to fear my God. I love that. In Mary, we are taught to know ourselves, to recognize ourselves. Julian then shifts to a showing of Jesus, more glorified than she has ever seen him before, the resurrected Christ. Jesus, beyond suffering, reveals himself in his eternal fullness. Here, I have to switch to the Middle English because it really reveals the power and strangeness of this moment and these words. And I'm going to speak without my Middle English accent so that you can still understand it. (laughs) But afterwards, I I will say some in the real Middle English so that you can hear it too. I was learned that our soul shall never have rest till it comes into him, knowing that he is full head of joy, homely, and courteous, and blissful, and very life. Oftentimes, our Lord Jesus said, I it am, I it am, I it am that am highest, I it am that thou lovest, I it am that thou likest, I it am that thou servest, I it am that thou longest. I it am that thou desirest. 
I it am that thou meanest. I it am that is all. I it am that holy church preaches to thee and teaches to thee. I it am that showed myself to you. Chapter 26. I read this to you in Middle English, but I'm not actually reading it with the Middle English accent, just so you know. Here's a taste of it in real Middle English accent. I was learned that our soul shall never have rest till it comes into him, knowing that he is forehead of joy, homely and courteous and blissful and very lethe. It's a little different, huh? <laughs> this is a list, an interestingly repetitive and um, dominating list in its sounds. It really emphasizes what Julian would call the full head of Jesus, his fundamentally all-fulfilling nature. I it am, I it am. Jesus as full head of joy is a good word for me this week. As I worry about COVID and my family continues to wrestle with grief and the state of our country feels pretty uncertain and awful at times. In living my daily life, I am praying to choose Jesus for my heaven like Julian and not try to bypass all of the tough things. Perhaps you would like to pray Julian's words this week as well. As always, thanks for listening in to Old Books with Grace. I'd love to hear any of your thoughts on this topic via email or comments. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can receive um, future episodes directly to you. And I will see you next time. Rather, you will hear me next time. <laughs> <laughs>